This is Perspectives, the show where conversation about our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. Here's a fact. The CDC says Black men have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group in the United States. And then when you look at projections from the Census Bureau, we learn the life expectancy for a Black American male born in 2020 is 74 years. That is nearly five years less than the expectancy of a white newborn male. The death rate for Black Americans of all genders is generally higher than that of whites for heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, diabetes, HIV AIDS, and homicide. And according to the National Center for Health Statistics, the life expectancy of Black Americans overall is now at its lowest rate since the year 2000, 71.8 years, and that is largely due to COVID-19. Clearly, there is a national health crisis among Black Americans, but is our genetics the underlying culprit? In Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America, author Dana Bowen Matthew makes a strong evidence-based case that Black and Brown Americans are disproportionately dying young because of structural inequality and racism. A recognized leader in public health and civil rights law and the daughter of a hardworking African-American man who died at the age of 49. Dr. Matthew cites facts to support her assertion, prejudice and poverty continue to aggravate poor health and premature death among people of color across this country. And there's so much more that I can tell you about Dr. Bowen. I will say that she is Dean and Harold H. Green Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. She is a leader in public health and civil rights law. Dr. Matthew has also held many public policy roles, which include serving as a senior advisor to the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as a member of the health policy team for Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. She is also the author of the best-selling Just Medicine. So welcome to Perspectives. I'm happy to have you, Dr. Matthew. Candice, it's a pleasure to be with you. So we go from just medicine to just health. First things first, let me ask you to define, as you understand it, for our listeners, structural racism, because many people see it in many different ways. Thank you for the opportunity. And it is in large part why just medicine preceded just health. In a nutshell, structural racism is a system that is historically enabled by law and accomplishes two things very effectively and efficiently. Number one, it organizes people into a hierarchy based on their race. The hierarchy goes from very valuable to less valuable, superior to inferior, worthy to less worthy, and everything in between. So that's the first thing that structural racism does. But it's the second thing that affects our health outcomes, those terrible statistics that you opened with, Candice. The second thing is that structural racism allocates the resources of society, the opportunities that society has to offer, the power and influence in society according to that hierarchy. Again, from valuable to less valuable, the more valuable, the more your resources. And what resources are we talking about? the very resources that are required to be healthy, decent housing, clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, adequate nutrition and food to have, 
a working environment that's safe and healthy. Pay every aspect of society's resources are ordered by race and racial hierarchies. That's structural racism. How does that and income inequality work annually? And I hate that we use that word annually, every year to kill tens of thousands of people of color. We're talking African-Americans, Native Americans, our Latino population, well before their time to die. May I answer by telling you the story of my hardworking father that you introduced in? Please do. Because as I read that, it reminded me of my hardworking father who died of heart attack at 58. And see, this is the point. We're telling a story of an individual in order to represent what is happening to 84,000 people a year. 84,000 people a year die of health disparities, and these are preventable deaths. But your question is, how does income inequality affect it? Well, here's how. I grew up in the South Bronx. My father died at 49. Your father died at 58. Both of us are successful Black women and were successful because our parents, my father, gave his life. Income inequality meant that in order for me to leave the South Bronx where my schools were inferior, leave the South Bronx, which is uh, nicknamed Asthma Alley because of the pollution from highways and waste treatment plants. In order for me to go to a decent school, my father and mother together worked five jobs between them. The reason they worked five jobs between them is because not a single one of them paid a living wage. And they wanted what every American wants for their children, for me and my brother to be able to get a good education. We could not do it in the South Bronx and they had to make the difference up by working five jobs. Now, this is what it meant. I'm just gonna tell you about two of those jobs my father worked. So when I was four or five years old, my father graduated from CCNY. He went to college at night, he got a BA, which meant he had the privilege of being one of the few men in the South Bronx that got a suit and tie on every morning and went to work downtown at the Bowery Savings Bank for eight hours, nine to five. He was a real estate appraiser at the Bowery Savings Bank. Candace, I was so proud to see him walking. I can picture it right now, walking down our South Bronx street to the number six train wearing a suit and tie. Nobody did that in my, in my, in my neighborhood. He'd come home 5, 5.30, sit down, have dinner, go to sleep, but he was up again by eight to work another eight hour job. He was a motorman at the transit authority driving the number four Woodlawn train from eight o'clock at night to seven o'clock in the morning. So that meant if you do the calculation, he had about four or five hours left to sleep, eat, interact with his children, be a husband, be a father and everything else. You work that kind of life, those hours, and you do that in order to get your kids out. And my brother and I both went to Harvard. Both of us got out of the South Bronx it's because we didn't go to PS 123, the middle, middle school in my neighborhood. But my father died in order to make it happen. That's a story that happens over and over again. I don't want you to be sad for me because if I was telling the story just to get sympathy from my dad, I wouldn't have written a book. I wrote a book because my dad's story, your dad's story is so typical among people of color in this country. Talk to us about social comorbidities rather than individual biologicals comorbidities, which we will get to because we know that African-Americans, Native Americans, Latino Americans are predisposed to certain health maladies by virtue of being people of color in the country, but social comorbidities contribute to this, this high morbidity rate among minority populations in the US. 
Social morbidities not only contribute, they are the primary contributors. So you asked, was it genetics? The answer is in part, but a small part. So we have a, a pie chart. If you can imagine a circle and slices of that pie describe the percentage influence, what actually determines a population's health outcomes. So take my dad, 10% genetics, heart disease ran in our family, 10% access to healthcare. Did he go to the doctor regularly? Was it a good doctor? Did he get good care? That was what Just Medicine was about. 10% your clinical care. I know a large part of your audience said, well, what about his health behaviors? Did he smoke? Did he eat pork? Was he overweight? The answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. But the influence of that slice of this pie that we're building was about 30%. And Candace, I want to put that to the side. Candace, excuse me. I want to put that to the side because even health behaviors are informed by social conditions. The social comorbidity that is the most influential, the social comorbidity that has the biggest impact on your health outcome is where you live, where you work, where you play. Those are your social conditions. Do I have decent housing or do I have housing that is pest infested, lead paint on the walls, structurally inferior, no hot water, mold? Is that my living condition? Much more influential than my genetics. How about where I go to school? Do I go to school in a place that's gonna prepare me so that I can make a job that allows me to stay home during an, a, a pandemic throughout the United States so that I can sit in front of my computer, safely avoid public transportation, not ride up and down elevators in densely populated housing. I don't have to run a DoorDash job or put food on the shelf so that other people can get DoorDash. I stay home. The job that I am educated to do determines my health much more impactfully than my genetics. So you see these social comorbidities override overwhelmingly 40% of an influence on what your health outcomes are. It makes genetics and health behavior pale. Talk to us about the, and we're staying with this income inequality challenge and how different it is from city to city and from state to state. The income inequality is almost the most important intervention when we start talking about solutions because just health is not about just describing the problem, it's about finding solutions. One of the quickest way that we can improve these health disparities that you described in the introduction, Candice, is by repairing income inequality. And the reason is, once I make enough money so that I don't have to work the number of jobs that my father and mother had to work, so that I can afford to choose housing that is healthy and importantly, that is not segregated. You see, because if I live in a segregated neighborhood in the United States, the chances are also very high that all the rest of my social determinants are inferior, right? Structural racism, again, we see that black and brown people disproportionately do not make enough money to live in neighborhoods with parks where I can recreate. Low violence and not being over-policed so that I can feel safe and my mental health is healthy. Good food so that I can eat, not at bodegas, not at convenience stores, not at fast food stores, but I can find healthy food that's affordable and transportation. These infrastructures that go along with being able to buy a house in a neighborhood that's affordable, 
are why income inequality is so important in determining health across the country. How do we get our lawmakers, not only the federal ones, our members of Congress in the House and the Senate, but lawmakers who really influence our lives at the local level to care about this issue enough to make decisions that will make a positive difference in the lives of the people in our communities. One of the reasons I feel privileged to be on your program perspectives is because I think we make our leaders accountable from the bottom up. If I can speak to your audience directly and say, it is you that are going to have the influence. And let me be clear, one of the themes of this book is that structural racism hurts everybody, Black, white, Latino, native, gay, straight, male, female. This is all of our problem. And when we teach our leaders that we're gonna hold them accountable for the inequality, the injustice of discrimination and structural racism, then they will become responsive to us. The way I hope to convince people that this is a fight worth waging is by pointing first to the success of the civil rights movement and second, pointing to the impact that structural racism has on the lives of all people. So we don't just worry about racism and its effect on the infant mortality rate of blacks. The evidence tells us, Candace, that the infant mortality of whites goes down in areas which are uh, very high in structural and explicit racism. How do I know that? Many studies, but one of my favorite ones, and I do a lot of studies in this book. I love the social science, because as you said in the introduction, this is a book on evidence-based learning. But one of the studies I love the best is a researcher who scraped Google and Twitter searches for racial epithets, the N-word, um, all lives matter the kinds of things that people say if they're white supremacists. And then organized by geographic area, counties, states, the density or the frequency of those searches. Where they were high, we consider those a high racist environment. Where they're low, a lower racist environment. And do you know the health outcomes of not only blacks, but also whites were worse. Where there were more people searching for those racial epithets than when they were compared to places where there were fewer. When people say racist things like, I don't want them living near me, or answer a survey to say that they may be okay, but I don't want to go to school with them and I don't want them to marry me. And we collect those people in one geographic area, they die whether they're white or black sooner due to heart disease. Their infant mortality rates are higher. So this affects us all on a very real and quantifiable viable level, racism kills us all. Are there certain diseases that are more prevalent in societies and communities where income inequality is greatest? You know, there actually are, and this was a surprise to me. I didn't realize that. There's some evidence that there's an association between societal inequality and increased obesity, uh, increased alcohol abuse, increase diabetes. The mortality, uh, morbidity and mortality rates for these kinds of diseases do appear to be coordinated with greater income inequality. And here's, here's something I wanna be very clear with listeners about. This is not just 
lower and higher income correlations in absolute terms where one group or one location makes more money than the other. This is the gap, the actual inequality, where the difference between the haves and the have-nots are greater. We see greater incidence of alcohol abuse, diabetes, greater incidence of obesity. It is actually the inequality itself that is correlated with bad health outcomes. Now we see that not only in these individual diseases, but we see this pattern replicated over and over again. One of my favorite studies is by a pair of researchers, Wilkinson and Pickett. They found that all of the OECD nations, the 11 most developed Western nations in the world, have a positive correlation between income inequality, that gap that I'm talking about, and bad health outcomes. So if you can imagine a diagonal line from low to high and the nations arrayed according to who has the worst outcomes and the best outcomes, Japan, the best health outcomes, the best social outcomes, and the United States, the worst health outcomes, the worst social outcomes. Why? Because Japan has the lowest income inequality along the array of all of these nations and the United States has the greatest. We see that over and over again. Nations, counties, states, if you have an inequality problem, you also have a health problem. Atlanta is currently experiencing a surge in violent crime. We are also experiencing a greater incidence of gang-related violent crime. Based upon things that you've already shared, both seem to be tied to income inequality and likely the health disparities that exist in this community. It's very clear to me that we are talking about a seamless web, that none of these problems operate in isolation. The fact that you in Atlanta are experiencing a violence pro problem doesn't surprise me given the income inequality, the residential segregation, the educational segregation and disparities that operate in the city of Atlanta. I know because I have family that live in Atlanta. Now, the fact of the matter is that COVID-19 gave us a very stark object lesson. If we care to pause and take the lesson, we can learn that none of what you described is a surprise. It is not a surprise that where you have great income inequality, you also have violence, you also have disparities in health, you also have underperformance and low educational entertainment. The seamless web in past years has been called uh, a cycle. Uh, but I call it a web because you can intervene at any and every point, no matter who you are or where you are. If you're a school teacher, you can intervene in your school and look at the disparity between black and white children's disciplinarity differences. Does the same behavior for a white kid yield expulsion and suspension as it does for a black kid? It doesn't, not anywhere, not in Atlanta. Does the same behavior in your school send one kid to treatment if they're white 
and another kid to juvenile detention if they're black, completing the starting the school to prison pipeline. So if you're a teacher, a school administrator, there's a place for you to intervene. If you're a healthcare worker, there's a place for you to intervene. Do you see that the patients coming into your treatment facility, whether it's a clinic, a hospital, an urgent care, are they getting the same treatment if they're black and if they're white? You can intervene if they're not. Little things like, are they getting the same length of appointment? Are they getting the same referral to specialized services? I'd say likely not, since the data tell us that there's a wide disparity in treatment and communication in healthcare. If you are a worker in tech, are you hiring people with integrated communities and hiring committees rather, so that role models from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization are diverse? Or are we looking at a concentration of workers in the janitorial and service areas who are of color and no promotion of people to the top of that income and employment spectrum? So you see discrimination is so pervasive that none of us has any excuse for not working on this problem right where we live. And that seamless web, if we all intervene, I haven't gotten to police officers, I haven't gotten to food workers, I haven't gotten to farmers. We have such a long way to go before we live out the truth of our creed that all are created equal with rights from their creator that are to be respected under law. We have so far to go that no one has any excuse not to get to work on this problem. So as we begin to wrap up our time together, in addition to reading this incredibly researched book, what is your call to action for someone who's listening to us today? What is one thing that one person can do to begin this work? Identify the inequality that's right in your midst and hold yourself accountable for intervening to stop it. As I say, it's everywhere. Recognize that it is pervasive and it is pernicious. It hurts us all. So get to work, whether it's in your supermarket, in your school, or at your job. Get to work training your children. Get to work getting yourself outside of the comfort zone that you have built around yourself. Vote to get rid of those who are not working on this problem that hurts us all. Stop tolerating the racial division that we are watching right before our eyes be, eyes be ginned up by our politicians. I don't know if you've watched the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, uh, but don't tolerate for another minute someone who represents you and asks a judge about critical race theory. A judge has nothing to do with critical race theory. And if that's the focus of your inquiry, you are stirring up the problem instead of solving it, vote them out of office. So you asked for one thing, I gave you 10, I'm sorry. No, do not apologize. And indeed, I thought about as you were talking the many questions that I have seen asked of the Supreme Court nominee that did not seem appropriate questions for a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, I think I read even one analysis that said only in America and in this situation would these types of questions be appropriate for I a job interview. Accurate. I think that's accurate. The book is Just Health, 
Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. The author is Dana Bowen Matthew. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Candace. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condus Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condus? C-O-N-D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time as we explore new perspectives. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.